How many of you watch one show at a time and never touch the remote? Raise your hands. Okay, good. I feel better about myself. How many of you watch at least two shows at a time? Three? Oh, good, good. Four. A lot of you either don't watch TV or you don't want to talk to me right now. Five shows at a time? There you go. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Depends on the night. I know. I'm a notorious channel surfer. Because I'm always like going, up oh, commercial, let's find something else on. So I'll watch two or three t- things at a time. Lately, it seems like, and I usually am doing it late at night. And, you know, like a, you know, 10 or 11 or something like that. And, and so I never see anything original. Everything is always in reruns. I always see what everyone else is talking about two years ago. I've been watching Shark Tank a little bit this week. Or not this week, but lately. Another thing that I've caught a little bit has been recently an episode of Hoarders. And if you've never seen the show, it's just one of those, it's another one of those things. You like go, whoever thought that this would make a TV show that anyone, even me, would watch? I don't know. So I was watching that recently. I'm not going to get into the psychology of it, but there was just a couple observations I made as I was watching it. One was it occurred to me that this poor lady would never, ever enjoy everything that she had collected because she could never find it. She, I mean, she had so much stuff that her stuff was buried underneath her stuff. And so, therefore, she had hoarded it, but she could not enjoy it. And then the other observation I had was that what happens to all that stuff? In every episode, she doesn't keep it. It all gets carted out to that large dumpster. Even so they, you don't enjoy it because you can't find it. And then you don't enjoy it because the people in the TV show just took it all out in the dumpster. There are some things in our American culture that it's appropriate and okay and even applauded to hoard. For instance, you can look in your closet and you can see all those clothes in it. You can see all those shoes in there. You can look at all that jewelry. You can look at and you fill in the blank because you know what you hoard to some degree or another, whatever it may be. Can you really enjoy all of it? Isn't it true that even of all the stuff that you've hoarded, You have your favorite things, and that's what you wear most of the time anyway? What would it mean for you to go from, like, 40 shirts to your 10 most favorite? What is it about getting rid of those other 30 that seems traumatic? Is it not true? Is it not true that we think, I might need them? Oh, absolutely. I'll confess... Is Betty in here? Good, I can say this, all right? (laughs) I'll confess that I have minor hoarding tendencies in some areas, you know. And I think, I might need this. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I see Cindy Newman talking to Larry. We have stuff in her garage that I haven't seen for a year, but I'm going to need it one of these days. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. Okay. It's this thing that I might need it someday that makes us hang on to it, doesn't it? So it doesn't matter what it is. We just think that we might need it someday. Well, today in our parable we're looking at, there was a New Testament hoarder that we're looking at. Open up your Bibles to Luke 12. This is the parable 
of the rich fool. Let's read verses 13 through 15, and then we'll go forward. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And he said, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. The man in verse 13 is suffering for the reality of being a son. And in the context of New Testament times, he's suffering from the reality of probably being the third son. It was custom, it goes back to Levitical law, that says that the first son gets a double portion. That means two portions, you know, the first son gets a double portion. If you're the second son, you get a portion. If you're the third son, what's left? Little to nothing. Here, we probably have a third son. And I would venture to guess that he's not asking this question in the absence of his brother, because that's the way human nature is. We typically, you know, haven't you ever seen your sons or your daughters ask you to do something they know you'll probably say no to in front of other people? There's that that peer pressure that you use to try and get what you want. And so here's this young man. He shows up. He has rightly concluded that this teacher, that this prophet, whoever this guy is, has some sway and people listen to him. So he goes, excuse me, excuse me, my brother, tell him to split up the inheritance with me. And Jesus immediately identifies the problem. He immediately identifies the problem, verse 15, of being greed. In other words, he's saying, you didn't get something you want, so you want me to intervene and give you something you don't deserve. Excessive desire. That's the definition of greed, excessive desire. So this man wants more, to which Jesus says, your life does not consist of what you have. When you think about that, how do we process that statement? What does your life consist of? If I were to say that there's an art collection, a local gallery, and it consists of 50 paintings, what did I just say? Talk to me. What did I just say? Yes? It has 50 paintings. And what defines that, that particular exhibit? the number of paintings in it. So that exhibit is made up of those paintings. That's what it is. And so you describe it by what it's made up of. And he's saying that your life is not described by the number of cars you have or the number of storage units you have all your stuff in or your neighbor's garage. It's not defined by that, he says. Your life is not defined by the abundance of your stuff. He says... The natural question, then, is what does my life consist of? What should a life consist of? If it's not my stuff, if it's not my job, if it's not the number of children I have, it's not the the address that I have or the cars that I drive or the title on my name on the door of that place or the lack of a title on that place, if it's not my income, then what is it that my life should consist of if it's not all that stuff? And so to answer that question, Christ goes into a parable. Let's read verses 16 through 21. 
And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. Pause right there real quickly. The only farmer I know is Doug Wright, so he just gets picked on when I talk about farming stuff. Doug, I'm talking about you, brother. Anytime you're trying to grow something, whether it's a rose bush or tomato plant, you know that you can do everything right, and yet it might never give you a rose bloom, might never give you a tomato. i got to tell you, our backyard, we have spent hours and a lot of money, not a lot, lot, but a lot of money, to try and grow grass. It will not happen. It will not happen. They could not write this proverb about us and say, this couple had a yard that was very productive. They would say, that doesn't exist in that house. It doesn't happen. Because what happens is, is you have insects, you have animals, you have drought, you have children who, stump, who stamp on it. You have lots of things you can't control to make that ground be productive. And yet it says, this man's ground was productive. Continue to read. And he began to reason to himself. And he said, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down all my barns, I'll build new ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to myself, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you've prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself, who is not rich with God. All right, let's do a little personal Bible study now. Open up your text there and answer a couple questions for me. How many times does the rich man refer to God? Okay, that was easy. Now you have to count. How many times does he refer to himself? A lot, yes, thank you. At least 11 times. At least 11 times he says, I, me, myself. At least I, me, myself. He refers to himself a lot here. This dude is taking all the credit for everything that God blessed him with. Everything. Everything. And in thinking about this point, that you go a little bit further, and he says, I've got all this now. I've got all this now, and now I will sit back and enjoy it. In the very next verse, who's going to have this when you're gone? What will come of it when you're gone? That word right there in verse 20, required. That word right there, required, has the sense of it in the Greek, in the Greek of paying back something that is owed. Paying back something that is owed. And in thinking about this point, that God required his soul. He, he took it back. And I came across this thought that, that God takes the poor man's soul as well as the rich man's soul. They're all his. Rich or poor, they're all his. Neither of them take anything with them into the next life. Matter of fact, the rich man and the poor man, they both leave this life the same way, empty-handed. But they don't arrive in the next life necessarily the same way. They don't have to. What we have in this life doesn't count for much in the next, but we can invest in the next life and 
and B, you know, note the phrase that Luke, Luke uses here at the very end of verse 21, and be rich toward God. That is how we arrive in the next life with something. That's the only thing we can take in the next life. Be rich as it concerns God. One of my, one of the people that I enjoy reading, his name is, he's just a pastor, and his name is Hampton Keithley, and he says this. He says, there is a major reversal in the parable. The rich man ends up being poor to God. Notice the poetic justice. Why does Jesus tell a bunch of poor people about a rich man? How does a rich man's story go over? Poor people want bad things to happen to rich people. You see that every night on CNN and Fox News. Every night. That's what's driving our political process right now. How does a rich man's story go over? And it happens that way because they're jealous. It happens that way because they want what they don't have. It's natural for all of us, is it not? So politicians get elected playing on that emotion. And to the poor people, this is poetic justice. To the rich, it is tragedy. This is the first answer to the the greedy brother. This is the exact answer he gets. He says, even if you had all the inheritance, it wouldn't matter in eternity. He's answering the brother right here. This guy says, excuse me, I am not getting any of my father's inheritance. I don't really deserve it, but I want it. And if you could apply some pressure on that guy over there, I would really appreciate it. And the Lord says, you know what? Even if you had it, even if you had all the inheritance and your other brothers were all cut out, it wouldn't matter for eternity. And you'd be saying to this this now rich brother, this rich greedy brother, the exact same thing he was saying to the rich fool. Now that you have it, what are you going to do with it? Because you can't take it with you. And so the Lord goes further, and he begins to unpack the parable. Let's read further. Verse 22. And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, and they have not storeroom nor barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even very little of a very little thing, why are you anxious about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, Solomon in all of his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown back into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O man of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat and what you should drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. Verse 31, but seek for his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves purses which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Interesting in here, if being rich toward God is the most important thing, don't be anxious about this life. If the next life is the most important thing, don't be anxious about this life, he says. You notice in this passage, three different times he addresses worry or anxiety. Verse 22, verse 26, verse 29. He says, don't worry, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. And he says, but what you should worry about, a matter of fact, pay attention. We didn't look at the whole chapter, which is probably the better thing to do to try and address this. But if you looked at the whole chapter, even going back to chapter 11, you would know common thought here. But look at this. When he talks about, he's saying, don't worry about these things. The Father's going to take care of them. He does in this chapter tell you one thing to worry about. You have to go back to verses 4 and 5. And he says there, chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you, whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast him into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's inserted himself into the equation. If you're worried about something, don't be worried about your bank account. Don't be worried about the name on your clothing. Don't be worried about your car. Don't be worried about the stuff that's in this world that's going to burn. (laughs) Worry about the one you'll answer to in the next life. Worry about him. But in verse 30, he says this, God knows what you need. So be rich toward God, he says in verse 31. Make what is important to him important to you, and he'll take care of the concerns of your life. Make what is important to him important to you, and he'll take care of the rest. In verse 32, he says, don't be afraid. God is taking care of you. Going further in 34, 33 and 34, he says, So don't invest in this life. Don't hoard all the stuff of this world. Don't build bigger houses to store it in or bigger barns. And so just as hoarding, on, as depicted on TV shows, needs to be addressed, so does hoarding in our hearts needs to be addressed. Because the stuff that is in the garage, the stuff that is in the storeroom, the stuff that is in the barn or the storage house, all of that stuff is not really the problem. It's the heart. We keep all that because why? We just might need it. And in essence, it's speaking to security. In essence, it's speaking to, I might need it. I need this for security. I might need this. And he just said this. He says, look, the lilies of the field, the birds, they depend on me, and I take care of everything for them. You are so much more important to me than them. Don't you think I would take care of you as well? When you hoard this stuff, when you build these bigger storehouses, when you put all this stuff in there, what you're saying is, is you can't depend upon me. What you're saying is, is I'm not sure about you, God, so I've got to have my own backup. What you're saying is, is you're afraid that I can't take care of you, so you're going to work really hard so you can do it yourself. that won't make you rich in the next life and it really doesn't make you rich in this life. Instead of investing in this life, he says, invest in the next life. How do I relate to the stuff of this life if nothing in it matters? If nothing in this life is eternal, what, how do I relate to it? Invest in the next life, the eternal life, 
where you can put treasure. What does he say in verse 33? You can put it where there is no thief can come, no moth destroys, it will not rot, melt, be eaten, trampled, stolen, or anything. It's safe there. And then he says this, where your heart is, there is your treasure. You think about this. Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, has a great illustration where he talks about that you buy something that's nice. Let's say that you buy, you know, one of these, I don't even know what all the features they have, but one of these super high-end, digital, I don't know, all kinds of fancy, most expensive TV you can have. Well, your investment didn't end at the TV, did it? Because why would you have a TV like that if you're not going to put a soundbar on it, right? If that's the case, then you're not going to have a TV so you can watch the five different local broadcast stations, are you? So you better have the good stuff on it, too. So you better subscribe to a service that gives you the content you want to put over a TV like that because I just don't want to watch, you know, the local news guys on that TV. I want the good stuff. And you realize how this thing you've invested your heart into all of a sudden begins to shape things around it, and it takes a life of its own. For instance... A great illustration of this. And some of you have big TV, so I don't think I'm talking about you. Um, here in our area, how many of you have ever driven past Oxford Valley Mall, Oxford Valley, and you've gone past the PetSmart and the Home Depot? And sitting in the parking lot there is a car like that. Anyone seen it? It's not quite that car, but it's really close to it. It is one car. It's kind of like the, the paint job Pam Seat is missing on her hot car out there. <laughs> this, this thing is metallic pink-ish, and then it ha- and then it's the kind of paint job on it that has like the sun hits it different ways and you see different colors on it. And then he added these really ripping hot flames on the side of it. He does not park that up there where the common people park. He parks it out there on the last row, closest to the road, where no one else parks. He's communicating something. I've invested in this, and I'm taking care of this. He has put his heart in that. And it is so special that it can't just be... Wait a minute, no one in this room owns that car, do you? Okay, good, good. Then we can keep talking about him, all right? So... He has invested his heart in this vehicle in such a way that it can't be just where any other vehicle is. He has got something invested in this car that his heart is attached to it, and he's protecting it. What have you attached your heart to the way that this owner has attached his heart to this car? What have you attached your heart to in such a way that you protect it? You make sure it gets all the attention that it needs. You make sure that it's taken care of better than anything else in your life. What have you attached your heart to? Because that is your treasure. And if that treasure is one that you'll sell on eBay one day soon for a fraction of what you spent for it, then it's a bad investment. Are things wrong? No, they're not wrong. But where they take a priority in our life makes them wrong. Where we invest security in them makes them wrong. But things are not wrong at all. We make them wrong. Where our heart is, that is our treasure. Where is your treasure? 
Christ is making a really strong statement in here that says Christians are supposed to value different things than the world does. That's what he's saying in the particular passage where he says, the world feels this way about their stuff in verse 30. But not you, he's saying. That's the way the world is, but you're supposed to be different. Let me just point out one thing before we go any further, because some of you are like going, well, you haven't seen where I live, and you haven't seen what I drive, and so this passage does not apply to me. Then let me ask you this. We can also be greedy for intimacy. We can be greedy for all kinds of intangibles, value. We, we can be greedy for trying to be around safe people, somebody who will make us feel important. We can be greedy for power, for position, for title, for the opinion or the attention of others. And those things are not that different than a car or a house. As a matter of fact, those things really shape us more than our things do. We can make those things more important than what God thinks is important. We can be anxious about those things as well. There are so many things that we can be anxious with or about that he says, don't be. I'll take care of them. You can fill in the blank of your own life what you're anxious about. And he says, I'll take care of it if you make important what I think is important. Let's talk about the two things that I think are the most important thing to God, the things that he wants us to be most invested in. One is God's glory, his reputation. His reputation. Each one of you are representatives of Jesus. Each one of you, if you can imagine this, you wear a uniform, and on it it says Christ's ambassador on the back, and on the front it says Fred right here. And so you go out into the world, and you wear this uniform, and you go out, and you are representing Jesus wherever you go, whatever you're doing. So when people watch you, when they see how you behave, when they see what you're worried about, when they see how, what upsets you or what makes you happy or what gives you joy, they're like going, oh, that's what Jesus is like too then because this guy represents Jesus. He says so. It's on his shirt. That's why some of us don't put bumper stickers on our car. We don't want people to know I represent him because we're worried about our representation. We represent him. So we have to be living a life. And the power of the Holy Spirit and in the instruction of the Word and in the fellowship of the body of Christ in such a way that we give glory to Him, that we make His reputation bigger and more glamorous because He's deserving of it. What's going to happen at the end of all this? We're not going to take to Him and bring Him up to our bank account and say, here's my wallet, here's my credit cards, here's all my stuff. I know you're really interested in this. Here, take it. Look how much I've accumulated for you. No, on the other side, when I lay my head down, I wake my eyes up on the other side, it's going to begin an eternity of praise and honor and glorifying him. And so what I do in this life, I want to be doing that for him now. The other thing is his mission. His mission is people. The one that he said to the Great Commission, he said, go and make disciples. That's people. The other thing he said is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's God and his glory. And love others as yourself. He did not put us in that equation. He did not put big barns in that equation. He did not put hoarding of anything in that equation. He says, my mission is my glory and the people around you. If we want to invest in eternity... If we want to know what is important to him, then all we have to do is look around the people sitting around you right now, and that's what is important to him. Are you investing in them? Are you investing in them? What that rich man missed in that parable 
was this. He sought great success in this life instead of great success in the next life. He wanted to know who was going to pay the bills in this life, so he pursued that in his own energy instead of including God in that equation. His great failure was the emphasis and the short-sightedness to think that this was what was important. And in doing so, he missed out on hearing that because there is no greater success than hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. Scripture is full of instruction like that. But if you want a little bit of help in learning that, we give away this book. There's a stack of them right there. They're free to you. If you want to understand better what God says about treasuring eternity as opposed to treasuring the temporal stuff that's going to burn, take one of those books. If we run out, come and tell me. I've got another stack just that size downstairs I can bring up. Take one of those books and then read how he's looking at Scripture and unpacking it and demonstrating us to us that God only gives you what you have, not for yourself, not to hoard it, but that you can pass it on, that you can use it to bless others. He blessed the rich man, not so that he could hoard it in the barn, but so that he could bless others with it. And so whether you have a little or a lot, you have it not for yourself, but for someone else around you. And as you give that away, you're saying to God, this is all I have, but apparently you said you'll take care of me, so I'm going to give this away. Now, I'm waiting on you to take care of me. He's just waiting on someone to step out in that kind of faith and say, you said so, here I am. God loves a double dog dare. And he is doing that to us. And he's saying, I double dog dare you to give it away and turn around and look at me and say, I'm in need. Can you meet my need? Oh, taste and see that he is good. You'll never know he's good if you never taste. And trusting him at his word is tasting him. Many of us feel like he's filled us only because... We've never tasted him, trusted him at his word.